0: Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who is truly sovereign, and that the details of human history do not escape you. We're thankful, Father, for your providential care over your people, the church. I ask, Lord, that in light of this letter that your son wrote to the church in Thyatira so long ago, that you would cause us to stop and contemplate the degree to which we are exercising the authority that you've given us over our lives, over our homes here in this church and in this nation. We want to be a people that rule well in mercy, in grace, and in truth. And so be pleased this hour, Father, by your Spirit to sanctify us in truth. Enable us to hear and then to do in a manner that is most pleasing to you. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. The title of the sermon is, Who's in Charge? You say, well, it's a strange title. You're asking a question. I think that many ask that today as we look upon the world and we see what seems to be a time in human history when many countries and political leaders are out of control. And so you heard from the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Thyatira, a call for God's people to exercise biblical authority. Now that's a term that we hear when we hear authority and rule, we usually don't respond well to it. Because most of us as Americans, we've been taught to rebel against authority and or we've experienced authority that's not been biblical and therefore we don't like it. The question for us is who's in charge requires us to ask a primary question, and that is, what was the original plan for mankind in the beginning? Made in the image of God, what was the plan by God for man before the fall? Genesis 1.28 says that God blessed Adam and Eve, and he said to them this, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion, rule, authority over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, in the very beginning when God created all that is seen and unseen before the fall, mankind was given the authority to have dominion over the earth, to be God's vice regents, to rule on his behalf. And so it's in our DNA to rule. It's part of our constitutional makeup. But when sin entered, the desire to rule became perverted. And rather than the righteous rule of sinless man being the story of human history, Instead, history has been littered with the unrighteous rule of sinful men. So bloodied has the story become that many today, even Christians, rebel against all authority as though authority in and of itself is intrinsically bad. We don't trust those in positions of power at any level. We live instead in the spirit of the 1960s and we rebel for the sake of rebellion. And yet we all know what it's like to come under someone who rules well. Most of us have experienced that righteous authority in our life. Someone who rules as a sacrificial servant. Someone who rules with love and truth. That godly husband who truly protects and provides and serves his wife. That godly boss who casts a vision and leads fairly but does not micromanage his employees. A godly coach who creates a culture of both sacrifice and brotherhood. A truly honorable judge who rules her court with both justice and mercy. We've all experienced and we've all tasted what good rule and good authority looks like. God created mankind not to rebel against authority and not to relinquish the authority that God has given us. God has made us to rule well to rule as image bearers of the king. This morning as we hear our Lord dictate the fourth letter of seven letters written to seven churches in Asia Minor, I would like for us to grow in our understanding of this creation mandate role. It's something we don't talk about much. I'm not quite sure why. I could speculate, but it's irrelevant. The role that God has given us as image bearers. And my hope is that those of us who are redeemed by grace and indwelt by the Holy Spirit will begin to rule well in every sphere of influence in our lives. And I'd like for us to, to see that when we do rule well, when we do exercise godly authority within proper jurisdictions, mankind is not only blessed, but God is glorified. So let's have a look at Jesus' letter to the church at Thyatira. And look, let's look at God's grace in three ways. Let's look, one, at the authority that's been abrogated. Abrogated means to relinquish or to not exercise. Number two, authority that's exercised, and we'll see that's by Christ. And number three, the authority that is to be shared. That's the church with Christ forever. So if there were a theme to the sermon, it would be this, that you were created to rule with Christ for the glory of God. You were created as an image bearer to rule with Christ for the glory of God. Point number one. Authority abrogated. Look at verse 18. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write this, Jesus is speaking, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So Jesus, the only time in the entire book of Revelation that he is identified as the Son of God is here. And so he's saying to the church at Thyatira, by the way, the one who is speaking is God. I am the Son of God, the only begotten Son. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, as we had a chance to hear in the baptismal waters. He identifies himself in this unique relationship as he writes to the church at Thyatira. And then he says, I see with eyes like flaming fire, which means I see everything. He's God. He's God. He sees everything, he knows everything, what we do and why we do what we do. And then he adds, and my feet are like burnished bronze. And we saw that a couple of weeks back from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. That means he has absolute control over his enemies. No one usurps the Son of Man. So Thyatira, right off the bat, is made aware that the Son of God knows everything and has the power to judge. In other words, Jesus sets himself up to Thyatira as the ruler of the universe. He is the one who has absolute authority vested in him by God the Father. But then he turns the dialogue in verse 19 and he commends them. Did you notice that? Look at verse 19. The Son of God then says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first Thyatira, of all seven churches, receives the greatest and most commendations. The Lord is pleased with the works of Thyatira. He mentions five things. He says, I know your love. He says, I know your love for my Father. I know your love for one another. I know your love for the lost as you go out and you share the gospel and you make disciples. Christ says, I see it and I love it. Well done. He says, I know your faith. In other words, your refusal to compromise on the gospel of grace. I know your steadfastness in my name, even, those, even against those who, who come against you and who come against the church. He said, you remain steadfast in the faith. He then says, I know your service, your real care for one another, your real watch care for those in the church, your faithful proclamation outside the church, making disciples and serving your community. He says, I know your patient endurance. They were suffering too. Just like at Pergamum and Smyrna, they were suffering. He says, and yet you hold the course. You're being persecuted and ridiculed. Some of you are thrown into jail. Some of you are being put to death, and yet you persevere for my name's sake. And then he adds one more. He says, I know your latter works exceed the first. In other words, he says, you're a growing church. He says, you're growing in your love for me and in your service towards me. Love, faith, service, endurance, and spiritual growth. What more could a church ask for? This is God speaking and God says, this is what I see in you, thyrotyra. I see love, faith, service, endurance, and spiritual growth. It was a glowing evaluation by the Son of God who sees everything. Thyrotyra was a very, very healthy church. Inside and out, save one thing. Just one. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, but I have this against you, That you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, those in the church, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, for those of you who know your Old Testament, you hear that name Jezebel and you cringe. That's one name that we don't name our daughters, Jezebel. Jezebel, if you remember, she was the daughter of the priest king, Ethbael who ruled over the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. And Ethbael had a great plan. He decided to have Jezebel marry the evil king of Israel, the ten tribes to the north, King Ahab. And together, Jezebel and Ahab truly were a match made in hell. Once married, Jezebel successfully brought the worship of Baal, the Phoenician gods, into the worship of of Israel and she created a nation of syncretistic worship as we looked at last week that was taking place in Pergamum they worshiped Yahweh and they worshiped Baal she brought in her own prophets 850 prophets of Baal in fact she actually paid them she financed the prophets of Baal from the treasury of Yahweh money that had been given to worship Yahweh Once in power, she systematically started murdering all the prophets of God with Elijah being her number one target. After several years of treachery and spreading the lies of Baalism to the people of God, God finally acted. He took action and he punished her. She was actually thrown, according to scriptures, from her own palace by her own eunuchs. And as prophesied by God, if you know your Old Testament, she was then what? She was then eaten by dogs. You don't forget that part of Scripture, do you? She was eaten by dogs. You said not completely. Everything was eaten except her hands, her feet, and her head. The implications being that her hands and her feet that she used to shed blood and her head that she used to devise and speak such evil were too wicked for even the dogs to eat. That's the attachment to the name Jezebel. So when Jesus identifies this woman in Thyatira as Jezebel, that wasn't her real name, that was the title that Christ gave her, he is saying the same infectious disease that Jezebel brought to my people Israel back in 1 Kings, this woman has brought to his people in Thyatira. Now unlike the previous three churches we've mentioned, Thyatira was not a wealthy church nor was it in a wealthy city. Thyrotyra was a working class church in a blue collar town. Forty miles southeast of Pergamum, Thyrotyra's economy was primarily trade based. In other words, they, they produced and they distributed things like leather, dyes, fabrics, blacksmiths, iron, pottery. And as a trade based economy, there would have been great pressure for those in the church to bow down to what were called trade idols. You say, well, what is a trade idol? Each trade had a guild or association attached to it. And in those guilds, they had particular idols that they were to bow down to. And if you didn't bow down to that trade idol in that particular guild, then you wouldn't participate in that particular trade. Participation and success in the trade required the burning of incense, the bowing down to idols, the eating food that was sacrificed to these false gods, and in some cases, sleeping with idol prostitutes to these false gods. In other words, if you wanted to work, if you wanted to get promoted, if you wanted to engage in the marketplace with your particular trade, this behavior was mandatory. And if you refused in Thyatira, then you did not work. And you were part of the outcast, part of the poor, unable to support your family's needs. We're talking about basic needs like food and rent and clothing. They could not pay for. So there was great pressure inside the church in Thyatira to conform to these trade guilds these trade idols. And so here comes this woman, Jezebel. She comes into the church claiming herself to be a prophetess and she's teaching God's people in Thyroditus. She's seducing them to bow down to these trade idols. Look at the latter part of verse 20. She was teaching them to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to the idols of these various trade guilds. And she was advocating this type of idolatry and immorality, listen very carefully, as a good thing, as a necessary thing. Jezebel was very pragmatic. She didn't come into the church saying, oh, by the way, my nickname's Jezebel, and I'm gonna claim to be a prophetess even though I'm not, and I'm gonna try to seduce you and get you to engage in idolatry and sexual morality. She didn't enter the church like that. No wolf enters the church like that. They come in in what? In sheep's clothing. So she looked like a sheep, she sounded like a sheep, she got baptized, she joined the covenant membership, and then what? Suddenly, over time, she began to sow her seeds, her lies, contrary to the orthodoxy of the teachings of the church. And before long, many in the church, who according to verse 19 were very, very faithful, those in the church began to go astray. My beloved, this is one of the great dangers for any church that number one, does not guard their front door. And what I mean by that is properly screening those who actually come into the church and become members of a covenant community. And number two, the great danger of not safeguarding the teachings in the church, the doctrines and practices that are allowed to be taught and then exercised in the body of Christ. Wolves come in promulgating false doctrines allowed in the church to lead God's people astray primarily because there is a lack of biblical leadership within the context of the church. And when that happens, then false teaching comes. Now I want you to notice something, that Jesus' complaint is not against Jezebel and it's not against those following her, not yet anyway. His complaint is addressed to the church. Look at verse 20 again. Jesus said, but I have this against you. Against who? Against you, Thyatira, against you, the church, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And so it was Thyatira's tolerance for allowing Jezebel such teachings and such behavior inside the covenant community that Jesus says, I have this against you, this tolerance of this abhorrent, idolatrous, adulterous teaching that's inside the body of Christ. He has something against the elders. He has something against the deacons. He has something against their ministry leaders. We would say he has something against the entire church church. Because every member is responsible for the orthodox teaching and behavior of that local body. All of those who allowed this Jezebel to come in without check, without rebuke, without church discipline. Jesus, now the son of God, saying, I see everything. He says, I have it against you. In other words, the church had failed to exercise their biblical authority. They had abrogated that authority to this false prophetess. They failed to guard and protect the orthodox teachings of the church. And they failed to love their brothers and sisters by allowing them to be seduced by a Jezebel of the first century. So Jesus is saying, in your tolerance of evil, listen closely. In your refusing to exercise biblical authority, Jesus is saying, over my church. Remember, this is his church. By refusing to hold fast to the word of God, the Bible, the Bible, you revealed a side of you that is very, very what? Unloving. Oh, they were loving on one hand and yet unloving in their tolerance on the other. And we know why. We know that tolerance without truth is not loving. Tolerance without truth is hateful. Tolerance that is not guarded and boarded and protected by the truth of God's word, no matter what it looks like, it is not loving, it is destructive. We've seen that in the church today. In the church today, especially in the West, in the name of tolerance today, we not only allow, but we celebrate what? Same-sex marriage. As though it's good. Even though God's word says, a man and a woman will become one. In the church today, in the name of tolerance, we encourage things like gender fluidity and the mutilation of our own bodies due to sexual reassignment. Even though we know it's God who creates man in His image, male and female. In the name of tolerance and love, the church has embraced everything from homosexuality and transgenderism to abortion. Even though we know it's God who is the one who gives life and calls all life sacred. In the name of tolerance and love, instead of training up our children to know and love the Lord, we relinquish them to the culture and they're trained by people like Jezebel. In the name of tolerance and love, we condone isolationism and forsake community. In the name of tolerance and love, we preach gospels that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In gatherings just like this, in this Bay Area, and certainly throughout this country, the gospel is being preached that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do it in the name of love and tolerance because we do not want to offend. But tolerance without truth is not love. It is hateful because it is a lie and it is contrary to the word of God. So Thyatira, for all the good that Jesus saw, was failing to exercise the authority that God had given to them as a church to protect the word of God, to protect the honor of God, to protect the well-being of God's people. In the name of love and tolerance, they abrogated their authority to this false prophetess, and the result was idolatry, suffering, and destruction in the church. So what happens when a church abrogates its God-given authority? What does God do when churches act like Thyatira and allow a Jezebel to come in and mislead his own people to engage in sexual morality and the idolatry of false gods? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Authority exercised. Verse 21, Jesus is still speaking now. He said, I gave her, the woman called Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Those are some pretty amazing words that come from Christ. Thyatira's failure to exercise appropriate biblical authority within the church does not leave the church leaderless. Did you notice that? Jesus Christ is what? He's the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Every single true church belongs to him first and foremost. And so when the elders or the members of a local church fail to exercise biblical authority, then Christ will move. He will respond to a church that relinquishes their authority. He always will take matters into his own hands and he always does it with mercy and with truth. You see, Christ rules perfectly. Did you notice that? Beginning of verse 21, look with me again. This is such an amazing statement. I hope it caught your ear. Jesus is now speaking of Jezebel and he said what? Verse 21, I gave her this false prophetess, this teacher that's seducing his own people. I gave her past tense time to repent. So this is Jesus who sees everything perfectly and he's the perfect judge. He's perfectly just. He never does anything unjustly. And yet he stayed his hand against this woman. He gave her time to repent of her willful, evil deeds inside the church. And one of the things that I pray we come away with, one of the most fundamental characteristics of godly rule for you ruling in your life, in your family, in this church, in this community, is mercy. It's mercy. You want to be a godly ruler? Then rule with mercy. The fact that Jesus Christ Despite this woman's bringing infectious disease of false teachings into the church would stay his hand and not smite her immediately is truly extraordinary. He gave her time, time to repent, time to turn from her evil ways and come under the submission of God's good word. He gave her time. Mercy, my beloved, patience, compassion, and grace. These are all hallmarks of godly rule. So when you hear the word authority in the context of Scripture, it will include mercy and patience and compassion and grace. For that's how God relates to us. That's how God rules over us. Ask Christians, is it not? Every single moment of every day, Christians walk in the mercy of God. Every single moment, we know what we justly deserve for our sins. We know. We know more than anybody else. We know that Christ paid for our penalty in full. When we were, what, we were still sinners, when we were still in rebellion against him, and even this Lord's Day, it's such an amazing act of mercy, even this Lord's Day, as tens of thousands of Christians have gathered in places like this and filled churches like this, we know that many of our brothers and sisters and maybe even you are in willful, unrepentant sin. Sins we know we're engaged in and we know we should turn from because they're contrary to the word of God We even know that there's willful, unrepentant sin in the context of the church, and yet here we are. You say, how is that possible? God is merciful. The fact that we can gather here in the midst of our sin reveals God's mercy. But unlike the church in Thyatira, Jesus' mercy, His patiently waiting for those like Jezebel and maybe for those like you and me for sinners to turn is not detached from the truth. Mercy is granted for a time, so repentance can take place. But when repentance is not forthcoming, when the sinner sinner says, I'm going to remain defiant, I'm going to remain in rebellion, then Jesus moves. And in Thyatira, we saw him move in three particular ways. And if you were listening closely and it did not catch your ear, then I want you to listen closely again. The first thing he says, I'm going to show you how I'm going to move on this woman Jezebel. Look at verse 22. He says, behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed." And you say, what does that mean? He's going to cause her to become physically ill. She's going to get sick, an ailment of the body, as a result of what? As a result of seducing those inside his church. Now, I have to admit, this is a foreign idea for the Western mind. I know I struggle with this. When I think of sickness, I think of disease. I think of medicine. I think of medical doctors. That's not detached from truth. But there's something here that we're seeing that's repeated again and again in the Word of God that one of the means that God uses to either discipline His children or punish those who continue in their sin is physical sickness. We can't deny it from the text, and I don't think we can even deny it from many of our own experiences in life. And he does the same today. Simply because we live in the Western world with modern medicine doesn't mean that God has stopped using sickness as a means of disciplining or punishing. It'd be foolish for us to think he has. So what we want to do is we want to stop relegating. Every time we get sick or every time we're hurt to some infectious disease or ailing bodies because we're getting old. That's almost our first default, our first response. Sometimes, my beloved, sometimes our physical struggles are a direct result of our refusal to repent from sins that we are engaged in, and we know, sometimes. And therefore, the cure is not going to be you going to a medical doctor and getting a prescription. The cure will be repentance. The cure will be turning from the sin and turning to Christ and being healed spiritually and possibly Physically. For those following Jezebel, Jesus said this, verse 22, latter part, he said, and those who commit adultery with her, those who are engaged in the idol worship of the the guild gods, he said, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So unless they turn from these, these guild gods and this idolatrous worship, he says, I'm gonna bring tribulation, hardship, and suffering into your life. In other words, their suffering was not going to be because they're sinners living in a fallen world in these particular cases, they were going to suffer as a direct result of their willful listen, willful disobedience to the living God. Now again, like our, our modern view of medicine, I don't think contemporary Christians really strive to make connections between our willful sin and tribulation in our life. I mean, we hear about it, we pray about it, someone says, how are you? He says, I'm really struggling, I'm struggling in my marriage, I'm struggling with my children, I'm struggling at work, and do you then ask, is there sin in your life? that would be a reasonable question you say, "Well, why would you ask me that i'm having troubles you need to counsel me you need to love me yes love and truth go together in fact if you've ever seen a neuthetic counselor one of the first things they will ask you are you living in willful unrepentant sin because that's where you want to start that's where you want to start it was god through the holy spirit who said in hebrews twelve six that the lord disciplines those he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. Sometimes, my friends, sometimes our struggles reveal more than our living in a fallen world. Sometimes our tribulation and our suffering is a direct result of our lack of repentance from our sin. Sometimes. So Jesus, the head of the church, says, I will make some sick, I will make some suffer, and then he says, I'm gonna take some lives. Did you notice that in verse 23? I will strike her children dead. Speaking of those... Who follow this Jezebel I will strike some of them dead some of those who continue in their false worship now that's an amazing statement so how how could God do that how could God take the lives of those in the context of his church well I would say this is the most extreme action that God would take when there's rebellion inside the body of Christ but he is head of his church we are made in his image we belong to God we belong to God. When he exercises this inside the church for those who remain in willful disobedience, we ought not be shocked. We know Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? They lied. they lied against the Holy Spirit, and God killed them on the spot before Peter and the apostles in the church. We recently, for those of you who were a follower of Robbie Zacharias, I was, I cut my teeth on Robbie Zacharias' apologetics when I was younger. He died in 2020 of bone cancer. He was diagnosed and died two months later. Post-mortem, we found out that Robbie Zacharias was engaged in some of the worst sexual sin you could possibly imagine. Broke my heart and many others as well. But I couldn't help to think that after I heard that, did he truly just die of bone cancer as a result of bone cancer, or was this a means by which that God was disciplining and or punishing him? could have been strictly the cancer or could have been his spiritual condition that resulted in his death. Jesus makes it very clear whether we want to believe it or not, some of our sickness, some of our suffering, and even some of our death is a direct result of our refusal to repent. God calls us to repent. He calls us to turn from those sins and to walk in righteousness. And when we say no to God, we are saying yes to sickness, suffering, and potentially death. That's what Christ is saying to the church in Thyatira. My beloved, when the mercy of God is spurned, when we remain in willful rebellion against Christ, Jesus will move. He is merciful and he is gracious and he is patient, but his tolerance and his love is always attached to truth. He is truth. And so he says to the church in Thyatira, I will honor my Father's name. I will honor the purity of the church. I will honor the gospel testimony to the world by ensuring that these people do not continue to promulgate false doctrine. And then he said in the latter part of verse 23, look with me. Here's his justification in doing this. And all the churches will know that I am he, speaking of Christ, I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so he says, the sickness and the suffering and the death, all will know that I see this and I am acting, I'm adjudicating as the good judge. All the other six churches, certainly all the churches throughout church history, and I hope for us today, we will know that Jesus, as head of his body, exercises authority justly. And he will give justly according to what we do. So do you see now, I pray you do, the evil of tolerance in the church in Thyatira. Do you see how evil it was? Because the leaders of the church and the members of the church abrogated their authority to properly what? Love their brothers and sisters in Christ and say, do not follow that Jezebel. Do not bow down to those idols. Do not engage in sexual morality. Because they did not do that, they did not exercise their watch care as covenant members. Because they shied away from church discipline. Matthew 18 And who knows why they did it. Maybe they did it out of a false understanding of love and tolerance. Maybe they did it in order to keep the peace. Maybe they didn't want to lose members either. Maybe COVID hit them and they lost half their church and they want people to stay. So they preach something easy. But how much better would it have been for that church, out of love, true love, to have called Jezebel and the others to repent How much better had that church exercised a loving excommunication and cast them out that they might be sifted by Satan and brought back in than to have the Son of God bring sickness, persecution, and death. Oh, I would say it would have been a radically loving act for Thyatira to love their brothers and sisters with godly authority and godly discipline. My beloved, the next time you refuse the call to repentance when a brother or sister comes to you in love, The next time you hesitate to call your brothers and sisters to repentance when you see willful, unrepentant sin in their life, the next time we gather as a church and we practice church discipline and you're saying to yourself, that's not fair, that's intolerant, that's not loving, I want you to remember the consequences of the Son of God when a church fails to exercise biblical authority. Sickness, persecution, and death. It is a dangerous a very dangerous and grievous thing for someone to remain in willful, unrepentant sin. And it should compel us out of our true love for one another to speak up and to help, to strive in our biblical authority that God's given us to truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You say, well, this is not all that cheery, Pastor. This is not all that encouraging. It should be very encouraging to you. If you know yourself and you know the depth of your sin and you know how easily you go astray, how beautiful it is that God would give us the church to help us remain on that narrow path. How glorious is that? None of us are above accountability. None of us are above the need for brothers and sisters to say, hey, I want to help you. I see you're struggling. And that we have the humility to say, yeah, I need help. I need help. And have the resources here to do that. So we've seen one, the authority abrogated by the church and it is evil. Number two, the authority exercised by the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and that is good and glorious. I want to show you one more before I close. I want to show you authority shared and this teaching might shock you. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, those who have not engaged in this worship of idols and sexual morality with Jezebel, those of you who do not, did not, do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say this, I do not lay on you any other burden. Verse 25, only hold fast to what you have until I come. And so he says, to those of you who did not fall into Satan's trap, he said, when did Satan come into play here? Satan was working through Jezebel. right? The teachings of Jezebel were very much the teachings of Satan. He said, well, what are these deep things of Satan and the commentators are all over on this, um, I, I do not believe it's this deep, dark list, you know, a top 10 thou shalt not do list does not make up the deep things of Satan. I think it's actually rather quite simple. I think it's Satan's ability to convince us that God's not sufficient. Right? The deep things of Satan is to convince you that you need someone or something other than the one true living God. That's a deep thing of Satan because if he can convince you of that, that you need someone or something else more than God to protect and provide for you, then you'll turn to that other person or that other thing. You'll turn to that trade guild or that false god in order to bring you what you think you need. It might be fame, it might be money, it might be success, it might be power. It's something for you, and in doing that, Satan has successful in turning you away from your creator. Now to those in Thyatira who had steered clear of the deep things of Satan and remained faithful to Christ... Jesus says this in the latter part of verse 24. He says, I do not lay on you any other burdens. In other words, he says, continue what you're doing. Remember, outside of their deception by Jezebel, they were were vested in love and fidelity and service and perseverance, and they were growing spiritually. He says, stay the course. You're doing a great job. And then he adds one thing, verse 25. Only do this. Hold fast what you have until I come. Stay the course. Don't deviate Don't forsake the faith. Don't compromise on the faith. Persevere to the end until I come. And then, as he ends all of his letters, there's a blessing. In fact, here there are two. He says, I'm going to give you two gifts for those who conquer, for those who make it all the way to the end, remaining faithful. I have two gifts for you. One you would, I hope, have come to expect by now, because he says it in almost every single letter. The other one, maybe not. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, the one who conquers, the one who conquers is the one who remains faithful all the way to the end. All the way to the end. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and I will rule them with, and he, the the saints, will rule them with a rod of iron and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And then he says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star now the morning star is, is somewhat disputed trying to figure out you know, its apocalyptic language so there's symbolism involved. Some actually draw from Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 and they believe that the morning star is, is God's promise to his saints to be like, that will shine, eternally will shine like stars in the universe. Um, others like the morning star to the, to the planet Venus um, which is called For those of you who are astronomers, it's nicknamed the morning star because it shines so brilliantly in the pre-dawn light. And so they attach the morning star to the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has come and he shines brilliantly to all creation before the dawn of what? Of the new age, of him coming again in glory. And that actually I don't think this is terribly cryptic. It makes a lot of sense. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus literally says this. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the what? The bright morning star. So I think that there's good reason to believe that the morning star is actually Christ because he says, I'm the morning star. Not terribly complicated. So like the promise made to Pergamum, Jesus said, I'm gonna give you the hidden manna. I'm gonna give you me, Christ said. I'm gonna give you, Jesus said, I'm gonna give you myself. He says the same thing to the church in Thyatira. I'm going to give you the morning star. I'm going to give you myself. And with Christ, that means what? All his love, all his protection, all his provision, all his joy, forever and ever. Christ says, that's what you get when you get me. And you say, well, that's sufficient. If I conquer, I get Christ. You need to say not another word, pastor, because I'm satisfied in Jesus. Jesus has something else to say, so I will add it because he said it latter part of verse 26. To him, the one who conquers, I will give authority over the nations. Verse 27. And he, those who conquer, will rule them, the nations, with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And you say, wait a minute. What is he talking about? You know what he's talking about. Do you hear what he's saying? Question for you. What is, what is your vision of life after death? If you know Christ, you said, oh I, I, oh, I have great hopes of the eternal realm. You've already taught us, Pastor. You said in Revelation 2, 7 that we're promised paradise and the tree of life. And, and I like that. I like the way that sounds. And you told us that we get the crown of life and we have victory over the second death so we will not be judged and we will not be condemned for our sin. And you told us that we have full access. We get the little white rock with Jesus' name written on it so we have full access into the eternal realm. You say, that's good. That's all wonderful. But does your vision for your eternal future include ruling over the nations with God? Yes, you. You say, I've never ruled anything in my life. And I don't like to rule. I'm shy. Well, you might be in trouble. Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, where the Son of Man is revealed to us as the one who will rule talks about, this prophecy talks about the saints ruling with him. Daniel chapter seven, this is centuries before Jesus. It says the saints of the most high, that's the church, shall receive what? The kingdom, God's kingdom, and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And then, Nine verses later, it says in Daniel 7, verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to whom? To the people of the saints of the Most High. In other words, the authority that God the Father gave to God the Son to rule because Jesus conquered sin and death through the cross. Jesus is saying now, and I'm going to give it to you. God the Father gives it to Christ. Christ gives it to his church and he says, we're gonna rule together. Look at verse 27 again. And he, that's the saints, will rule, wi- rule them, the nations, with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. Now that had been very, very important for the trade, those in the trade of pottery and those in the trade of iron to hear that this authority would be exercised by Christ and the church. The very church that was suffering and Thyatira, because they couldn't participate in the, tr- the, the trade guilds because of their faith in Jesus, were one day what? Going to rule over them. That would have caused those outside the church to at least pause, I think. Jesus is saying the same authority the Father has given me, I'm going to bestow upon my people. My beloved, this is, this is such an amazing teaching. It's such a profound biblical teaching that the church of Jesus Christ is going to rule with Christ from the throne, the throne of heaven you will be seated on with Jesus. It's it's an amazing thought, but it's not novel. It's amazing to me, and hopefully it is to you, that one day, my beloved, listen, one day you will be more powerful than the most powerful ruler on earth today. Good or bad, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Joseph Biden, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, you will supersede in your power and authority. I would argue that one day you'll be more powerful than the most powerful rulers in all of human history. You say, well, what about King David? Yes. Julius Caesar? Yes. Alexander the Great? Constantine? Napoleon? George Washington? Come on. Yes. More so than George. Amazing but not novel. Why is that not novel? This was the creation mandate, was it not? This is what God ordained Adam and Eve to do before there was sin. That they were to have dominion over the earth. They were to rule and subdue the earth with mercy and with truth. They were to rule the earth with Christ outside of sin. And now Jesus is saying the righteous rule of God's people over his creation will be restored. So this is a restoration promise. Adam and Eve's failure in the garden was overcome by Christ's victory on the cross. And so through the cross, my beloved, Jesus not only paid for our sins in full, granting forgiveness and grace to all who repent and believe his sacrifice was sufficient, but he now reestablishes. This is so amazing. When you think of the cross and the work of Christ, he reestablishes his people as vice regents, as those given power to be exercised as rulers over the heavens and the earth with Christ. Rulers over his new creation, not like Adam and Eve who failed in their rebellion, but as those made righteous by the blood of Christ, as those who are sinless, merciful, gracious, loving, just rulers, just like our Savior and King. Now, if this is our future, my beloved, if this is our future, and I believe it to be so because the word of God is is true to rule over the heavens and the earth one day with Jesus and that authority was secured by the broken body and spilled blood of our Savior, then then I would argue, and I'll close on this, that we should strive in every area of our lives to rule well. That should be a hallmark, certainly of the believer and certainly of God's church, that we should strive in every area of our lives to rule well as God has called and equipped us to rule so shouldn't we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, shouldn't we rule well over our own lives, over our minds and our bodies, by exercising self-control, by taking the authority God has given us over our thoughts and our words and our actions, by putting to death the sin that dwells in us, shouldn't we rule in such a way when we can stop saying, I, I, I couldn't help myself, I, I didn't mean to. I couldn't stop myself. We should rule over ourselves. We should rule well over our homes, cultivating places in our homes where God's word is not only understood, but it is lived out and it is cherished. Shouldn't we have homes that are gospel-saturated, marriages that are gospel-saturated, children being raised in the faith, homes that are hospitable, Homes that become brilliant lights in neighborhoods because of the love and mercy and grace that go forth? And shouldn't we work hard to rule well in our churches, certainly in this church, keeping out the teachings and practices of the modern day Jezebels and loving our brothers and sisters by having a right watch care over their souls, having hard dialogues when we don't want to, forsaking the peace at times out of true love, not tolerance without truth, but tolerance in truth. And shouldn't we strive, I believe, to make this place, Cambrian Park, this community in which we live, the most blessed community that there can be? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we strive in ruling over the community by sharing the gospel and making disciples and serving the least and the last in our midst, coming alongside them and helping them in this human condition that has fallen? And above all else, should we not rule well for the glory of God? Should we not rule so that the dying world might get a glimpse of what the future holds? The mercy and the grace and the compassion and the love saturated in the truth of God's word. And in seeing that, be drawn to it. So that the lost might see, this dying world might see and repent and join Jesus in what? In fulfilling man's creation ordinance. How glorious if all those that we know who do not know Christ would come into the kingdom and be able to one day rule with Christ forever. What a great prayer. What a great hope. My beloved, you were saved by God. If you know Christ, you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not to continue in your rebellion against biblical authority and not to abrogate your biblical authority, but to exercise it in love, to use your authority as a Christian to serve others. To use your authority to minister to those who are truly in need. To use the God-given authority to share the gospel and to make disciples and to extend mercy and to stand up for truth in love and humility. This is your calling if you are a Christian. This is your future if you are a Christian. To have dominion over the heavens and the earth with Christ. So let me, let me close now in prayer and ask God to help us exercise that dominion well in our lives for His glory. Jesus said in verse 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I pray that you have an ear to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, most of us have experienced authority in our lives, in our homes, and certainly in our city and nation that have not been biblical, authority that has been heavy-handed and abusive, authority that has been filled with hate and not love. I ask, Father, that you would equip us as your people to exercise the biblical authority that you have given to us and you've commanded us that we might exercise it faithfully in our lives, in our homes, in this church, and in this community. And that in so doing, Father, we would show the great order that comes for those who follow Jesus Christ. I desire you would do this, Father, not only for our well-being, that you might bless our homes and this church and this community, but I pray above all else, you do it for your glory. Keep that vision of our future rule before us, Father, Remind us that one day we will be seated upon the throne with Christ, ruling over the heavens and the earth. And in light of that, Father, I pray we would practice well now. We would practice well the authority you've given us. And in so doing, make you known. In Christ's name, amen.